gather around the radio, boys and girls. It's time for Let's Talk Vets. Welcome. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Our mission here is to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. And tonight we'll hear from Dawn Shaw, Director of the VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System, with some important updates. And then stay tuned for a conversation with Dale Weiss, a Vietnam vet, and as you will learn, he has many other irons in the fire. Well, 2020 has been quite a year, and if recent events are any indication, 2021 may well follow suit. Most of us can agree that the civil unrest and rioting we have witnessed across this country is very disturbing. And as times in the past, it is also an indicator that not all is well in Camelot. What is it that prompted the civil unrest anyway? Why, what do you mean? The events of the past summer were clearly a direct result of systemic police misconduct against members of communities of color, which have been oppressed since the beginning of the country. And the assault on the Capitol was carried out by cult members in support of their leader, former President Trump. It's all crystal clear, right? Well, that might be true if you accept the major press coverage at face value. One thing, though, is very clear and undisputable. The civil unrest of this past year has cost billions of dollars in damage, destroyed thousands of businesses and jobs they provide, in turn hurting many lower-income segments of our communities. It has injured or killed too many folks and made us question the institutions which are the very foundation of our republic. All of this in the midst of a global pandemic. I for one find it curious that the tone of major news coverage of any of these tragic events has been very similar down to the words and phrases used by competitive sources and networks. Add to that apparently no thorough investigations have been done to identify the true participants of these events or find out who is funding them. Could there be forces afoot that are using legitimate grievance to advance their cause celebra? Could it be that these, quote, peaceful protests have been co-opted by professional anarchists 
intent on destabilizing our country for political gain? Well, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, check out the Anarchist Bible, the book Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. The rules enumerated herein are eerily similar to many of the tactics we've seen employed on Capitol Hill, but I'm sure that that is just a coincidence. What is clear is that the ensuing riots have thoroughly overshadowed any legitimate message the peaceful protesters intended to convey. The following words are some of the most important in that apple of gold, which is our Declaration of Independence. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That would be us, folks. The Declaration is, in essence, a list of grievances to the King of England, explaining why we are establishing a new country exclusive of a monarchy. I believe that many of our so-called leaders have forgotten where they came from and why they were elected, and that the trappings of their power and privilege, coupled with decades of feeding at the taxpayer trough, have corrupted many of these folks. Our new president has called for unity. and I think we can all agree that's the only way this country will move forward. However, words and actions are two different things. For the past few years, it's been made abundantly clear that many elected officials have little regard for the scores of regular folks who make this country run. Consider the sophomoric manner in which the various congressional committee hearings have been conducted or the condescending tone of the rhetoric. It is also clear that many of our congressional leaders hold those who don't share their views in great contempt. These distinguished ladies and gentlemen often talk about our Constitution and the rule of law. However, their actions, more often than not, are contrary to both. And the fact that no one appears to be held accountable for any wrongdoing except for those who dare to disagree with the popular narrative and are of the opposite party that is in control of the hearing. Beyond that, these modern-day kings and queens seek to personally destroy those opposing their viewpoints. Perhaps we're all just a little bit tired of being taken for granted, of being considered monolithic groups who will always vote a certain way. Tired of politicians who promise the moon in eloquent speeches and then provide just enough to keep the rabble in line. Why were the events at our capital so outrageous and shocking? Well, it is our capital, after all, and, and very much a symbol of our nation's noble purpose. For one thing, many of our so-called leaders were directly confronted, and quite frankly, it scared the hell out of them. 
I'm sure that the folks who own the businesses which were destroyed in last year's peaceful protests were also outraged and shocked as they watched their livelihoods destroyed, along with all the jobs they provided, while many state and local officials looked the other way or told their police authorities to stand down. If you consider the riots and civil unrest across this country simply peaceful protest, then you make a great mistake of ignoring the underlying cause. There are millions of Americans in all sectors of our society who feel abandoned by their government. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not referring to the folks that believe the election was stolen by massive voter fraud. No, I'm talking about average folks who see time and time again our so-called leaders expect us just simply to comply without question, to simply shut up and do as I say, not as I do. As our new president said, it's time for unity. It's time to heal. We can do that together. Well, yes, we can. We as Americans and those we elect to represent us could take a lesson from the 1% of our population, which is our active military and veterans. These folks also take an oath to uphold our Constitution and protect the people of the United States. But they actually live the words of their oath as opposed to many of our quote-unquote leaders who are quick to use these terms when it suits their purpose or as a punchline at a cocktail party. At the end of the day, the men and women of our armed forces don't necessarily only fight for the flag, our Constitution, truth, justice in the American way. No, they really fight to protect their buddies in the trench beside them. If we could adopt that same attitude, our political differences become inconsequential, and perhaps we can actually make this country, quote, a more perfect union, unquote. After all, we're all in the same trench. On a plane down west I see her stretching out below Land, blessed motherland The place where I was born Scars, yeah she's got her scars Sometimes it starts to worry me Cause lose, I don't want to lose Sight of who we are from the mountainside to the wave crash coast, there's a way to find better days I know. It's been a long, hard ride, got a ways to go, but this is still the place that we all Nothing feels like free Though it sometimes means we don't get along Cause ain't No, we're not the same But that's what makes us strong 
Across the sea, and they, yeah, they sign their names for something they believe. How the blood ran red, we laid our dead in sacred ground. Think, wonder what they think if they could see us now. It's been a long, hard ride. Got a ways to go. This is still a place that we all call home. It's been a long, hard ride, but I won't lose hope. This is still a place that we all. Each month, the director of the Hudson Valley VA system is kind enough to bring us up to speed on the latest news from the VA today. Thanks, Doug. I'm real pleased to give you an update today on how VA Hudson Valley is doing with the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. At the end of December, we received our first shipment of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. We quickly began offering the vaccine to our staff and vulnerable inpatient veterans while simultaneously establishing our process to provide the vaccine to our outpatient veterans. In early January, VA Hudson Valley started to administer the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine to our first outpatient veterans, which includes those veterans aged 75 and over, as well as those veterans who are essential workers in the community. So eligible veterans that fall into this category can call our dedicated vaccine scheduling line. The number for that is 845-838-7668. And that's to set up an appointment to be vaccinated. And if you happen to contact us during a time of high volume, please leave us a message and we will return your call as soon as possible. Also, our primary care patient-aligned care teams, or PAC teams, and our other departments here are working to identify and contact other eligible veterans based on their risk of getting infected or getting very sick if they are infected. 
And this includes our homeless veterans, veterans receiving chemotherapy, and veterans who have received an organ transplant or are waiting to receive one. As more veterans become eligible based on the guidance set forth by both VA and CDC, we will keep our veterans and community partners informed so we can continue to share and get as many veterans vaccinated as possible. Also, if you're not currently enrolled in VA healthcare and you have served in the military and would like to apply for VA healthcare benefits, you can contact Nicole Embry here at VA Hudson Valley, and she can be reached via email at Nicole.Embry, E-M as in Marie, B as in boy, R-Y, at VA.gov, or you can give her a call at 845-831-2000, extension 7721. And that's to enroll in VA healthcare benefits. Again, one last time, for eligible veterans that are interested in scheduling the vaccine, you can contact us at 845-838-7668. And that's for veterans currently who are 75 and over or essential workers in the community. And I just want to say thank you very much for inviting us on your show to share this important information, and thank you for your support of all our veterans during these very challenging and unprecedented times. Thank you. You're listening to WJFF, and it's Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Dale Weiss lives in Woodstock. He's a Vietnam vet and author, a raconteur, and just... An all-around good guy. Well, good morning, Dale, and welcome to Let's Talk Vets. No, thank you, Doug. So um, we want to talk a little bit about uh, your service and some of the other really interesting things that you've done with your life. Uh, you were drafted in 1969 and served with the U.S. Army in Vietnam and then later Cambodia. So uh, tell us about that. Okay. Well, I was, I was, as you said, I was drafted in uh, 1969 and trained more or less down south in uh, Fort Jackson and Fort Benning. And I arrived in Vietnam in 1970, uh, right at the beginning of Cambodia. So I went right into Cambodia uh, for a couple weeks and then got out. <laughs> Uh, and I was, uh, I was wounded in November. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Uh, yesterday was my 50th anniversary of being wounded in Vietnam. So you were, I'm going to take it, you were a, an infantryman? Oh, yes, yes. I was, uh, I was with the 1st Cav, 2nd of the 5th, and a, a recon team um, of 8 to 12 people at a time. Okay, and how, yeah. how, did, you get, how did you get wounded? Uh, it was an uh, ambush uh, of a leg, uh, wounded in the leg, uh, which I was evacuated out uh, pretty quickly. It was just getting dark, and they flew me into the 24th Vac Hospital in Long Bend, and they probably saved my life. <laughs> so uh, all in all, you were there for um, how long in country? Uh, a little over six months. I flew to Japan for more surgeries, and then eventually I was in St. Albans Naval Hospital in Queens. 
Well, that's a hell of a way to get out of Vietnam, but it's, I guess it's what they used to call the million-dollar injury. Uh, I don't wish this on anybody. Right, right. Um, uh, your leg fully recovered now? Well, I'm short by an inch. Um, my left okay. leg, I wear a lift. I still have drainage. So what was your return to the uh, quote-unquote world like? Very surreal, because I came home in a stretcher, one of the big transport planes, and... Uh, when I left Japan to come home, it took 22, 23 hours altogether because uh, we made different stops in Alaska, state of Washington, and then flew to Walter Reed where I spent the night. And then they flew us up to about 12 of us up to uh, Queens, New York, uh, St. Albans Naval Hospital, which is now a VA hospital. So that was kind of really weird. They, uh, it took me from LaGuardia on, on a bus, which had no seats, just had you could put the uh, stretchers in there. And they brought me to San Juan's hospital in which there was uh, kind of a loading bay <laughs> for all kinds of stuff. And they loaded us there, and there I met my doctors, and uh, was there for about 10 months in the hospital. So once you got out of the hospital and began your, I guess, your long-term rehab, um, getting back into the mainstream. How was, how'd you find reintegration, especially with the attitude of a lot of folks here where they, seems in Vietnam, instead of blaming the politicians, they blamed the soldiers. Right. My plan was, my father was a mechanic. Um, I wasn't a great student in high school. I had dropped out of college before I flunked out. That's how I got drafted thought I'd learn an occupation maybe in the military and I also had an in with a neighbor uh, I thought maybe I can get a good union job because of my leg injury I couldn't do that so I needed to go to school I needed schooling and um, I'm medically retired so I didn't have to pay anything I got a stipend for going to college and so um, I picked engineering it was uh, and it was difficult I kind of I, I I had this field jacket that was my field jacket and it had you know you've been in the military it has your name on it right and uh, and so uh, someone asked me in class I remember uh, when I was a freshman at the age of 22 uh, asked me oh you're in the military and I said no it's my brother's uh, field jacket and I don't have a brother so <laughs> That's yeah. how I dealt with it. I dealt with it by I wasn't a veteran. You just wanted to stay under the radar, and I can't blame you for that. Right, right. And that's that's what you know. There was really no help as there is today, or at least the start of uh, people helping veterans um, reintegrate. Right. right. But that's how I did it, and I took my mother's advice, which was really not great. She goes, "Well, bad things happen, and you move on." And I said, "Okay, I'll do that." You know, so, <laughs> so that worked up until the first Gulf War, and then. It, yeah, yeah. And then it just all came back. Yeah. Now you didn't you didn't you were never back in the military after that. No, like I said I was medically retired, so I have the benefits of someone in for the 20. I was living in Austin, New York at the time and I would go up to West Point cuz I had an ID card and I would buy my groceries there and uh, you know, there's a package store and you know, and had the long hair and the field jacket. <laughs> there you go. Waiting anybody to give me a dirty look. Instead, they were just really nice to me. You know, oh, that's good. You know, walk by an officer and they nod at me. You know, and uh, come up and engage me in conversation. You know, so it was. Uh, 
You know, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> My daughter was born at, at Kelly, uh, when the first, uh, in 1978. So we're going to talk about, you made a couple of return trips to Vietnam, but what did you do be, in the 20 some odd years between the time you get out of the service and the time you went back to Vietnam? Well, basically, I just kept my head down. I was uh, had a full-time, very demanding job uh, as a as, as an engineer and designer, and before that, I was a draft, and I did that. Uh, That's back in the days where they had drawing boards. <laughs> yes, I still have a drafting. And you board. had to watch your uh, line quality and your lettering. Huh? <laughs> That's right, and I, working with ink sometimes, or even surveys on linen. <laughs> so. Uh, I was very involved in my community. I was a member of the Volunteer Ambulance Corps, OVAC, for uh, 18 years. And kind of like the military in a way, a different mission, in which you train together. Uh, you would go out on calls together, uh, and you would uh, transport them to hospital. And so I really enjoyed I was giving to the community at the same time. There was that edginess to it that I weirdly kind of missed in a way. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna uh, gonna yeah. ask you um, when you served as a first responder. Did that trigger anything in you from uh, your service in Vietnam? I think the only time it one incident there was a shooting, and I was going up the stairwell. Uh, the police were already upstairs where the victim was. I knew what I was walking into, and so uh, the chest wound, and so that kind of triggered me a little bit. Yeah, uh, people I was with noticed it. I still was able to function, but I became very quiet. Not unexpected. <laughs> uh, listen, you you returned to Vietnam. You made actually three trips: nineteen ninety three, nineteen ninety five, and nineteen ninety seven. And your your goal was uh, a form of reconciliation, correct? And delivering medical supplies. So, what was the genesis of those missions? Basically, it was designed for veterans to return, and um, this reconciliation thing. And I thought that would be a very positive thing for me to do uh, and do that. And I went, like I said, I went back three times. It was extremely rewarding. I, I've made friends uh, there, which I still have. One person I'm still in contact with uh, all these years. And uh, and and then after the third trip, I realized that my work on myself was stateside, <laughs> even though I enjoyed it. And in many ways, what returning did for me is that when I hear of Vietnam, it's it's not a war. It's, it's, it's a country. It's people. It's the people I met. But it, it did help me put it in perspective. Was this an agency that sponsored it was a, this? It was formed by a group by, oh, what was his name? Out, out in California, uh, Name was Gordon. He started. He was in construction, and he st he just wanted to do something for the Vietnamese because they were the embargo was on in uh, the I guess uh, early eighties. They, they they didn't have medical supplies uh, enough, and he wanted to do something. So he thought it'd be a good idea to bring teams of uh, veterans, veterans who were there in country, and also doctors and nurses, and also people who resisted. You know, the, the whole the whole gamut. I just totally had this feeling of something was released within me that right. I was able to put this in a place and go, ah, okay, and I'm doing something. I'm doing something as a team, 
We train together to go over this. It's uh, very difficult to do that. Every little village we went into, we were greeted really well. In 93, when we went there, there was a news crew who filmed us. I didn't think too much of it. But for the next couple of nights, they had it on their national news. <laughs> that these five veterans and, and, and this woman uh, therapist from the VA uh, Philadelphia were traveling about, you know, and so people seemed to all of a sudden in the hotel, you know, oh, you know, and they knew us. You know, Rec- really recognized. You were a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was really, it was very rewarding. I could tell you, I could spend the whole afternoon with you here, uh, Doug, and speak about the wonderful inter- interactions I had of people. Um, we had a issue with the car, and I got out, and there was a woman who was working one of the um, rice paddies. And uh, she's a peasant, you know, and uh, all of a sudden she made her way toward me and I'm waiting for her and uh, she gets up the bank and the uh, old woman and she started speaking to me in French and I thought, I, I don't speak French. And then she went into English and here's a, a woman of little means and and she goes, uh, what do you think of President Clinton, <laughs> your president? <laughs> And uh, I said, hey, and I'm stunned, you know, I'm stunned because here it is, I'm fumbling, I only speak English, and I know she at least speaks three languages, and she, and she goes, do you think he will lift the embargo on on Vietnam? Because that would be good for us. And I, I remember just uh, started to cry, you know, it was just, uh, yeah. uh, you know, here's this woman, then she was trying to comfort me. <laughs> oh, this, boy, yeah. I'm this American returning who at one time had a gun and <laughs> right, right. And here's this woman uh, comforting me, and uh, and later and uh, later she brought me to her where she lived and, and made me tea. So <laughs> very nice. Did you uh, during those trips? Did you happen to interact with any of your former adversaries? One time, I forget it was either '95 or '97. There was a group of veterans. They were from the north. Uh, they were North Vietnamese. They were very interested. They were, uh, uh, I think all of them were officers, um, uh, educated, uh, spoke English. They all spoke English. And they were asking about the VA system, you know, and they were very interested. So one of the guys who I was with said, uh, well, is this going to be for all veterans? And he goes, yes, all veterans. And he goes, uh, how about the former Arvins, uh, the former South Vietnamese Army? And he goes, well, no, it wouldn't be for them. They lost <laughs> the war. <laughs> so it was like, okay. oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't want to paint a negative picture. I met other uh, uh, soldiers individually um, who uh, I had very interesting conversations with uh, over coffee or a beer. And uh, so I've got to have all these memories just floating back of these three trips. And it was just so rewarding. We brought uh, one woman who went over with us, uh, a doctor, uh her daughter played soccer, and the daughter said, why don't you bring soccer balls? You can collapse them. <laughs> they won't take up much room. So we brought, I don't know how many, maybe a couple dozen uh, soccer balls. Uh, and so we went to this orphanage, and, uh, you know, and the kids, I guess, were supposed to be made to, they danced for us and did some music. And, uh, you know, we were showing them a microscope. We were giving them to the pharmacist there and some medical equipment. And then we brought the soccer balls and they had a pump and they got all excited and jumping up and down. And I, Oh my God, we, I don't play very well, but we went out and kicked the ball a little bit and it was, it was fun. So. That's a, that's a great story. 
Mm. Maybe the next war we should get both sides together in a huge bar <laughs> and just uh, drink and talk. Yeah, well, we, we all want the same thing. We want uh, we want want our families to be well, uh, healthy. Um, want them to be productive within their community, and that's uh, a common thread that we have with with everybody. I had this one interpreter. He was very religious, a Buddhist. Uh, he was taking us to. Uh, we had an old afternoon. He took us to a uh, a museum, and he was like talking about it so much, you know. And I said, uh, "Well, is this a place you want to work?" Because uh, uh, he was like a volunteer there, and he goes, I, "I'd love to work here." It's my. Uh, I said, it's "Your dream job?" And I, he, I explained to him what a dream job would be, and he goes, "Yes." And I go, uh, "Well, why don't?" Why don't you work here? You, you seem to be, you speak multiple languages. And he goes, well, in order to, this is 93, you have to be a communist, member of the Communist Party. And I go, you're not a communist, you're not a member of the Communist Party. And he goes, no. And I go, why don't you just join? <laughs> you can get your job. He goes, because I'm not a communist. Interesting. <laughs> it, was like, Interesting. it was like lost in trans. We like looking at each other like, you're, I'm looking at him like, you don't understand. Yeah. And he's looking at me like, aren't you listening to me? Yeah, yeah well, your uh, your stand on any particular issue depends upon very much where you sit. So, uh, Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, you know, overall, I, I found the people uh, very warm, very engaging. Especially the first couple nights we were in, well, Ho Chi Minh City now, um, we were sitting in a restaurant, and people stopped eating, and then would turn their chairs around to watch us eat, because <laughs> <laughs> they they weren't used to seeing a bunch of Americans. <laughs> you know, oh so, boy! Well, you know, so uh, so that was uh, very rewarding. Well, it sounds like a interesting hmm. life experience, to be sure. Your wife is a poet, yes. Allison Koffler. Yes, Allison Koffler. And with your wife, and you are the co-founder of. And I thought this was a pretty clever title, the post-traumatic press. Yes, my uh, one moment of genius in my life. <laughs> I was just coming up with that name. It all kind of started when I actually first met Allison. I had gone through a divorce, and I met Allison, I guess, in, it was 97. And I think I was going through the following year or the year after, I was going through a trauma-based uh, therapy group in Manhattan. When it was coming down to the last session, she sprung on as a therapist that we're going to take it. I just got a bus, and next week we're going to go down to the Vietnam Memorial. And I said, hell, I'm not going down there. Uh, I think all memorials glorify war. Uh, I've since changed my mind on that. But I came home, and I was ranting and stuff, and my uh, Allison said to me and gave me a piece of paper and uh, actually a journal and gave me a, a pen and told me I should write it out. <clears throat> so that's when I started writing, when I was uh, close to 50 years old. Uh, it's never, never too late. Yeah, and I found that uh, one of the most amazing gifts anybody ever gave to me was it was Allison giving me this, this gift of, of this journal and pen and giving me not permission is the wrong word, but gave me this uh, strength to really look at something that I've been looking away with. Even though I've been through therapy and everything else, it was, it, and it's hard work. It's hard work. And I sat down and I opened up that box of demons and I wrote about it. 
But then I'm also able to close the box of demons when I'm finished and I'm able to have a relationship and have a relationship with my children uh, and be in the community. And uh, make a long story short, I was doing a reading with a, a couple of the guys. And so I said, hey, I'll put something together. And so I went down to Staples, made multiple copies and folded it in half and stapled it. And that was my first publication. And uh, since then, I've uh, done multiple publications uh uh, in the beginning, mostly all veterans-based, and now it's uh, kind of blossomed into other subject, nature, vegetarianism, uh, all kinds of stuff. So, well, you got a couple of books, poems and other stuff, and ba uh, yes. Basic Load. Basic Load, yeah, that's an army term, uh, Basic Load, which you carry. So I, I did write a, a series of odes to things I carried in Vietnam, kind of the Tim O'Brien book, The Thing They Carry. You've, you've, uh, you've done quite a lot of that. How long has that been going on? Since, what, 2004? Yeah, 2000, I think I did my first uh, book, and uh, uh, I do it here in the house, most of them. Now I kind of outsource it with their bigger books. Uh, I can do smaller chapbooks of 24 to 40 pages. Does your wife do uh, some of this work with you, or...? Uh, yes, yeah, she's uh, kind of my copy editor, and also um, she's a very good at design, so a lot of the covers she does. And we're going to give the details, the contact details, and the website for that when we're done. For the past uh, five years, uh, you've served in a very interesting program called the Veterans Art Showcase. Yes. And it usually takes place at the FDR Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York, but this year, of course... The showcase was held on November 21st and demonstrated the many ways that arts are vital to veterans' reintegration for self-expression, recovery in the, of the after-effects of war, and reconnecting with the community. So reintegration is one of the biggest challenges for returning vets like your writing. The pursuance of a talent or a skill in turn affirms purpose. And this event obviously provides recognition of a veteran's work as well as affirmation of their purpose in life and value as citizens and patriots. How long has this program been going on? Uh, this is its eighth year, so I've been involved for the last five. I was attracted to it kind of immediately because I, I saw what poetry could do for me, you know, as far as looking at difficult subject of war and the military and i see it was done to other people in the other other disciplines in the arts and so i i got involved and the other side of it is is that this is a non-political thing it always seems the political stuff seeps in this has all kinds of flavors politically <laughs> but the idea is we're helping veterans sometimes our conversations are difficult we, like this one guy said, remind me why I like you, Dale, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what are, what, what's some of the artwork, the types of artwork? I mean, you have paintings, you have... It, it really, it, it varies. Uh, it, first of all, it's not a juried show. We take everything with the exception of if it's, if it's racist or uh, sexist, we will not do that. Well, that takes a lot of the politics out of it because I think the juried system has a lot of its own politics. Right, yeah. I say it's not jury, but I, I've I've rejected a few things, uh, and, and mainly I, I keep on telling people. Remember, we have children sometimes that go through <laughs> go through the gallery, 
In fact, one of uh, the our youngest entry was four years old. Uh, she had done a finger painting, and I guess it was uh, nursery school, and her father was in Iraq at the time. Some of her oldest entries are uh, in the nursing home at the Montrose VA Hospital. They have bring their shadow boxes up. We have other people who are in art therapy programs who have never done art before in their lives. And then we have accomplished artists who uh, see value in this, who have gone to the School of Visual Arts, um, sculpture, um, and painting. We also have a very interesting uh, group that uh, presents every year, and, and some of them are dear friends of mine. It's called Frontline Paper, or it used to be called Combat Paper, in which individuals, soldiers, uh, veterans come in and they grind up their uniforms, cut them up, put them in a beater, and make uh, paper. And it takes about a couple of weeks to dry, and they put art on it or poetry, and it does uh, that's a very interesting uh, program. Are there other programs like this around the country? Uh, yes, uh, they're springing up all over the place. This is not unique. I'm very encouraged because when I got out, and probably when you got out too, there was nothing. <laughs> so, and and now there's there's a lot of programs. There's uh, there's horse therapy. Uh, we have uh, a, a woman from Connecticut who comes over and talks about working with veterans with horses. There's actually two right in this area over in Milford. There's Gate yes. Gate and then Victory Hill over in Greenville. I've heard I've heard of them too. Um, uh, Jane Strong, who runs this other one, is go-to person as far as the horses. <laughs> uh, we also have. Uh, an interesting group, a former Marine, I believe his backstory is he joined a dance troupe called Exit 12. He's a ballet dancer, went to Juilliard, I believe, and he joined the Marine Corps. When he got back, he formed this dance company, Interpretive Dance Therapy. Uh, really interesting. And then filmmaking. We have a documentary film this year by a guy that's really kind of interesting. Michael Bricker, he lives in New Mexico, and we're showing his film, Mexican Pro Wrestling on the U.S.-Mexican border. <laughs> so, uh, he was in the Coast Guard. All kinds of art, uh, poetry, spoken word, music. We have music. Okay, Dale, so I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question. As a virtual event, how was the 8th Annual Veteran Arts Showcase? Uh, it went very well. Uh, we were very happy. We had uh, support from uh, uh, one of our newer members of putting it up, and it went up on November 21st without any hitches, and it was viewed by many people. And actually, it can still be viewed on our website, which is veteransartshowcase.org. So you didn't miss out. Anybody who didn't see it, you can still see it. It had... Uh, a gallery of over 40 artists. Uh, it had also a little introduction by George Laws, our chairperson, uh, also Lori Ayala. Uh, she did a uh, little history about the showcase. As you mentioned, it's in its eighth year. And uh, it also had, let's see what it had, three, four different uh, nonprofit groups. But thank you for asking. It went very well, swimmingly. Well, that's that's really good news. Uh, you are also involved with a group called Warrior Writers here yes. in the Hudson Valley. And in Warrior Writers workshops, participants take part in guided exercises, feedback, and group discussion. And 
Warrior Riders provides a safe place for active service members, veterans, and military families to write about their journey in the military experience. Like you just expressed, writing and other forms of meaningful work uh, give a person purpose, which is often lacking, especially for folks who are career military and long deployments. Um, to kind of lose their identity or come back certainly to a world and, and families that are a lot different than what they left. Right. And so that helps the reintegration. And you folks are involved with uh, our friend Kevin Keebney at the reintegration. Yes, yes. In I just, Kingston. I just have his information and right in front of me, Doug. You're reading my mind. Great guy. We did a did a did an interview with him last week. Okay. And um, he's a fascinating guy. I've been trying to nail him down for months. Oh. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, um, just to backtrack a little bit, I've been aware of Warrior Writers for over 10 years. Um, I think since 2007. Base, they were based out of Philadelphia, and then they started springing up around uh, the Philadelphia group. The founders, uh, they give workshops for facilitators. I uh, published uh, the New Jersey Warrior Writers at a TNAC, a 10-year anthology of uh, poetry, uh, different generations of veterans and also family members of uh, veterans. They're, they they come to these workshops too. And just recently, they just, just had their second workshop. One opened up here in Ulster County, and that is through Kevin's group, the Hudson Valley Center for uh, Veterans uh, Reintegration. And so we're meeting up partly uh, hybrid on Zoom and partly at his Kevin's office there in Kingston. Uh, and if anybody wants to get involved, there's a sign-up thing that they could do on uh, Kevin's website, which I could give to you now, uh, hvcvr.org. There are sign-ups. You can contact, if you don't live in the area, you can contact the Philadelphia office, and they're really good at getting back to you. You can just do a search for that. If someone wants to contact or get more information about post-traumatic press, how do they do that? They could just go right to the website, uh, post, one word, posttraumaticpress.com. And all the books and, and such are listed there, huh? And all the books are, are listed there for sale. So We often talk, too often talk and we should talk about veteran suicide and i believe before covid it was an average of 22 a day and i've heard from several people that they think it's much higher during covid for obvious reasons in your opinion what would be the most important thing to be done to stem this terrible tide of self-destruction uh, that's uh, that's hard to answer uh i believe that there's been a really effort by the VA in outreach. I think there could be more. I think there's a really uh, disconnect between those who serve, well, like what we're talking about, 1% of the population and everybody else. And I think there needs to be a start of some type of conversation. How that will come about, I really don't know. I, I went to my class reunion uh, 50 years, uh, a couple of years ago two years ago. They haven't seen me uh, since high school. Uh, they knew I was in Vietnam. They knew I was wounded. And they struggled to find words. They've even had to talk to me, and I found it difficult to talk to them. 
I kind of likened it to seeing somebody with with an obvious infirmity or a handicap, and a lot of people approach them differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that when they hear you're a veteran or sense that you have any kind of issues, or you have you're a veteran with a with a an obvious injury, people right away assume, well, they're they're damaged. We we got to be careful in the way we approach them, and and that goes back to what you're saying about your high school reunion. People just don't know how to how to interact, and they yeah because they don't know enough about it. So I think it's really important that the word gets out, uh, you know, about the experience because you can't understand the experience if you haven't lived it right 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 and that goes with anything yeah i i used to uh when i was living uh, full-time down in the bronx in the city i would go into a lot of schools uh high schools and uh give talks and uh and you know i'm so used to doing it it was almost like uh, i was going into just the mode and i knew what my talk was going to be so all of a sudden, this kid in the back who wasn't paying attention, he looks up and he looks at his paper. Apparently, he wrote a question down. He goes, who would you be if you didn't go to Vietnam? And I just floored me. And and I said a swear word, which I can't say on the radio. I said, hmm, I have no idea. <laughs> well, and I said, wait, that's a, that's a good question. And I, I said, uh, I think Vietnam tried to frame me in a way. But what it is, who would I be? I have, I'd have, probably have gotten a good union job or moved to Florida. Maybe I would go bowling on Thursdays. I, I don't know. It, it it just made me come back questioning authority. It, it kind of uh, made me more aware politically, uh, paying more attention. Uh, so it did change me. But it changed me in a, a, a good way. That's a really interesting question. I mean, that that would yeah, stop it, me dead in my tracks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because who who would you be, Doug, if you didn't have this military? Experience? Well, who would I be if I didn't do through a chain of events what I did during my career? Who knows? Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's that. So it, it was in a way it was kind of a hinge point in my in my life. But I don't know uh, why I said this. Uh, someone uh, said a. Uh, uh, I think it was one of the talks, so it was a question. And so the guy says, are you, are you a survivor? So I looked at him. I said, no, I'm a thriver. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm a thriver. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right, so what are your, what are your closing thoughts about um, the state of our military today? Uh, any profound inner thoughts you'd like to give to our audience to give them something to think about? We've been in Afghanistan, what, 20 years. Um, I can't even comprehend what our returning uh, men and women with multiple deployments. As a Vietnam veteran, we all knew we were going to spend 365 days, and that was it. We really need to look at our role on a world level. Uh, I, that's my my closing thought on that. You know, we talked about some of your interesting poems or prose would you like to read a couple for me i wrote a a series of odes of things i carried in vietnam kind of uh like the tim like the tim o'brien's book the things they carried i'm going to read you one it's called ode to p-38 no not the p-38 lightning aircraft nor the german semi-automatic pistol 
you're a field ration can opener, officially opener, comma, can, comma, hand, comma, folding, comma, type one. You were small and light to carry, hinged, nickel-plated, hardened steel, cheap, petite, one and a half inches long. You adorned my dog tag chain like a ring, my steady, around the block a few times, World War II, Korea, and me, Vietnam. Environmentally friendly, lightweight. You're human-powered, no batteries for you. Open sea rations, bottles, strip wire, clean boots, fingernails, a great marking tool. Once scaled a fish, do you remember? We parted that fall night, 24th of VACT Hospital. My last vision of you around my neck, resting on my dog tags. Never saw you again. I think of you often, my love. But as we both know, it was temporary. Heard about your retirement with the adoption of MREs. Thank you for everything, for penetrating all those sea rats. Never been able to buy myself an electric can opener. A little darker. I was a dancer once. Paid attention to the high grass. Learned to dance that dark rumba. I take my time. Choose the right partner with the utmost of care. Softly hold my weapon in my palm to feel its oily hardness, to smell it, a stench, a tang that only another soldier can sense. Come dance with me in the woodline, under the moonlight. Take your position. Open your black wings. Backwash. Dreamt I was in Walt Disney's Fantasia, the six dancing mushrooms, and me, the little mushroom at a step, the reluctant boy's soldier. Still hear the deafening chopper noise. See the way the backwash whipped the elephant grass, blowing off the roof, exposing the two women. Okay, Dale, I want to thank you for joining us and taking the time to share your experiences and all the good stuff that you do uh, on Let's Talk Vets on WJFF Radio Catskill. And thank you so much for doing this. This is really important. Uh, And if anybody uh, wants to get involved, you can go to our website. Uh, There's up in the upper right corner on the website. Uh, There's a button, and you can get our contact information if you want to volunteer. If you're an artist and you want to be involved next year, uh, we always could use help uh, and like to see your art. And also, um, there's a donation button. Thank you again. You're welcome. Our thanks tonight to Don Shaw, Director of the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System, and Dale Weiss, Vietnam vet and author, And, of course, to you for taking your time to join us again on Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. You can email me at vets at wjffradio.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Until our next formation, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll leave you tonight with a song about stories, the stories that every veteran has. Good night.
There's the ones that I can tell you And they'd probably take your breath But they're nothing like the ones That I can't talk about yet They call me a hero But I ain't no saint Everything that they don't know I wish I could say Where I go When I close my eyes at night I was taught to keep them locked Up inside my mind They're buried in the darkest place Underneath the guilt and shame Life is a living hell When it hurts this bad to tell stories I got it all together But they don't understand And how could they ever When they ain't ever been Where I go When I close my eyes at night I was taught I was taught to keep them locked up inside my 